three, two, one, and we're live. You're tuning to the Cosmic Children Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin. And today I have a fascinating individual in the studio with me. I have Ying Cho. So to kickstart this conversation, um, could you please introduce yourself? And mm-hmm. for those who might not know who you are, could you please describe what you do? Sure. Thanks, Kevin, for having me in the studio. Um, so uh, I'm 33 this year. Uh, and what I do for work is that I have two jobs. Actually, three, if you count uh, having a kid. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, the first job that pays the bills is uh, uh, what I do in the day. So, that's at St. Luke's Elder Care. Mm. So, uh, that's actually an elder care uh, a company where we have daycare services. And for me, I'm involved in the active aging uh, side of things where we run uh, centers that provide active aging programs and engagement for seniors. Uh, my night job, which has been my business for the past nine years, actually, yep. I was just counting the other day, uh, that's called Citizen Adventures. Mm. So we do tours around uh, social issues. Uh, and that really started um, my interest in social issues and social work um, sometime about 10 years ago when I was in school. Yep. Uh, so what I do now for work is I do tours, uh, bringing to light social issues in Singapore, uh, using neighborhoods that are interesting with mm. different narratives. Uh, my mainstay and flagship tour is Geelong Adventures, and that's where we bring people around Geelong, yep. a place that's always uh, interesting amongst most locals for its good food and also the red light district. So I'm going to put a pin on uh, St. Luke's Elder Care because I think that's a fascinating topic. I want to touch on Citizen Adventures. Sure. Mm. So you mentioned it is nine years ongoing. So yeah. I'm curious to know when you first started, Can you would, it, would you have imagined to, to be going so strong and so consistent nine years on? Yeah. Yeah, so it was actually a school project uh, when I first started. Like uh, most good things. Uh. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> yeah. I think in school, it depends on your group mates, right? Mm. Not all school projects turn out well. It depends yeah. on who you work with. But yeah. I was I was very lucky to have this uh, module called Sustainable Development in my tourism uh, degree program. Mm. Uh, and that considers the idea of you know, tourism beyond an economic driver mm. uh, for income. Uh, but how it could also contribute back in more soft manners where it uh, helps with uh, changing perceptions of a certain place uh, where income that's contributed doesn't just go to the business but it goes back to the community Mm. to challenge the idea of also uh, the role of community in uh, certain activities like Mm. tourism right does it have to be one-sided where they peddle their crafts or where they are um, you know put on a pedestal to showcase different qualities or traits that they are more well known for Um, but for me the challenge was also looking at sustainable design of Mm. um, narratives of how they could be inclusive of the different narratives that exist in community and also encapsulating the different complexities involved in human nature Uh, for me Geelong because I grew up there all my life and I still live there today in the same house Uh, so that's been really fun uh uh, starting the tours in 2014. Mm. Uh, 2013, actually, we started off uh, doing events. Uh, and that was kind of uh, to activate spaces, bring community together. Eventually then uh, doing it as a tour uh, to package it also as a business model, mm. one that was sustainable, one that was also uh, to play the long game yep. of really being in this to develop a place sustainably. Mm. So... Thank you for that. Um, I'm curious to know, mm. when you first encountered 
um, like these big macro ideas about uh, sustainability and I guess design and community and I guess sustainability in tourism, these really, really big ideas that, mm. that kind of challenge your perception. I'm curious to know, back then when you, uh, do you remember back then when you were in school, like when you first encountered it, uh, mm. what is your idea of sustainability back then? And did it mm. ever cross your mind uh, while, while you were living in Geelang that, hey, this is a pretty interesting space. It has certain stigmas, but it's not as people think it is. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember um, one of the definitions of uh, sustainability that um, we studied about, uh, the idea of kind of preserving uh, resources that mm -hmm. we have today um, to preserve them for future generations. The idea wasn't just to preserve, but it was to make sure that it was self-sustaining. So you have to generate, you have to have growth, you have to be uh, consistent, yep. and you have to have that idea of flourishing mm. to be truly sustainable. Yep. Um, and for me, I think when I saw it being applied to tourism though, uh, I think most of the applications of sustainability, um, even now in the industry of environmental sustainability, yep. uh, it could be actually misconstrued to be tokenistic, mm. to be one-off, yep. to be the idea of pushing out an idea and just, you know, just leaving it there uh, as an event. Mm. Um, and for me, that wasn't really encapsulating the idea of flourishing. Yep. Yeah. So that was kind of the dilemma as I uh, studied it, understood it conceptually. But in terms of application, felt conflicted about how tourism as a, a vehicle of advocacy, as a vehicle of change, as a vehicle of sustainability could actually push that needle of sustainability as a definition. Not just relative to tourism, but of development uh, of Singapore. Yep. Uh, development of it as a nation and the people as well. Yep. Uh, and that brings uh, me to also uh, the idea of the citizen uh, and the involvement of the ordinary citizen, right? Where um, I think day to day, it's easy to be comfortable in Singapore. Mm. Um, but for me, I think when I first started uh, and the name Citizen Adventures only came about much later in 2016, uh, the idea was really to bring about the change from within uh, where citizens are aware, mm. made aware of information, um, and they're also compelled to action. When you hear of injustice, when you hear of things that happen on a day-to-day -day basis to people around you, uh, would you then, uh, you know, perk up and listen or to look out for one another? Mm -hmm. And that's really the root advocacy that we're going for, perspective of education, uh, one that also transcends to action yep. uh, for the individual. So you mentioned the word flourishing, which I find um, an interesting word to use in conjunction with sustainability, because flourishing means um, it is thriving, it is growing without, uh, with with a certain amount of care or certain amount of selective care, it is growing beyond um, what it could actually be. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned about how um, it, it could be tokenistic mm -hmm. and why... Uh, having such practices or even tourism be flourishing is important. Um, I'm curious to know why do you think that is important? Yeah, so I think there has to be a balance with how we um, imagine, you know, systems and societies in the future. Mm. Um, in Singapore, for example, we have really been uh, focusing on economic development and growth in the past few years. Yep. Uh, and it's definitely seen the city grow and most people would agree as well, flourish and mm. thrive. Yep. Uh, and we have seen development in leaps and bounds. But I think it's also at this point of time where we ask ourselves how much growth or uh, economic uh, success is enough. Where we take stock of our uh, social, our environmental, 
resources. Mm. And we also take stock of the uh, kind of state that we are in in terms of the divisions that exist in, yep. in society and the uh, different uh, communities that are uh, encompassing also the diversity that Singapore has. And mm. it's really a fine balance. Mm. So it's about taking stock of, the, of all these and then reimagining the future of what we want it to be. Yep. Uh, for me, I have a young son. He's just turned one. Yeah. Congrats. Uh, so thanks. Yeah. Before he came about, I think for me, the idea of sustainability was for future generations. Yep. And that's always been a personal motivation because I see what we have and inherited from the previous generation. Mm -hmm. But for me, I feel hard to imagine what the future generation will inherit from our generation. Yep. And I think that's the idea of flourishing essentially. And for me now with a son, then it's more relevant to be passing on, you know, the resources or whatever that's left to his generation. Yep. Um, and, and so that's really the uh, basis of that idea. Yep. Um, I find myself very curious to know if you have always been this uh, socially conscious and conscious about, I guess, the machinations of how things work or did, did something you read along the way or, or did someone say something to you that kind of inspire you to, to traverse down this particular path? Yeah. So my wife always says I'm very capable. Like I like to poke my like nose a busy into, yeah, into other okay. business. And I, I, growing up in Geylang, I mm. think that has conditioned me to be interested in um, others, to be capable about uh, their lives because to me it's just interesting to hear yep yeah so uh, for example uh, in when I was uh, 18, 19 I would hang out in the beer gardens in the mm. coffee shops to do my assignments when I was in poly already um, and then subsequently in uni I'll continue hanging out in beer gardens because they're the best study corners at like 2am really? okay. yeah, and then it's good food and yep. then lots of like fun people to talk to and ex excitement happening yep to me, that was the perfect place to be, uh, to hang out. And I think it was through places like this that I got to know people that otherwise I would not have knew exist in mm. Singapore. Yep. Um, they were ranging from pimps to mm. sex workers to the drug pushers to the people who are addicted to them, mm. um, all the way to people who are undercover cops or claim mm. to be undercover cops, uh, to people who are uh, in Geylang, uh, for a good time even though they might be in society in a high position yep. where no one should know that they are in Geylang yep. kind of thing yep. yeah so I think it was you know being able to have these conversations and meeting these people that uh, made me fascinated and made me want to capo in, in more people's mm -hmm. business yeah my wife always says like you put me in a room uh, or, or put me with a stranger I'll end up like knowing all about that person wonderful um, uh, which can be a gift or can be a curse sometimes. <laughs> yeah, how is it a curse? I mean, like when I have other responsibilities <laughs> or things on my plate, and then I try and like help people, yep. uh, or you know, try and find out about what I can do to help this person in a yep. certain predicament. Um, but I think that's the idea of the spirit of looking out for one another, mm. uh, and it stems from the idea of not so much just being capable to find out about who you are or the issues that you might be struggling with but to understand how how do systems exist to help these people and if not uh how do we better protect or better mm. consider um you know safeguarding their interests as well yep yeah so so that really was uh 
hard hitting growing up because um you know you think that uh as you as I interact with more people it'd be like oh that's pretty cool and then when I have conversations with my friends or mm. my peers to be like oh that's crazy like what kind of a, um how how would a person go through such hardship or mm-hmm. what kind of uh story is this where someone like this could exist in such circumstances in Singapore yep. uh, especially when they um, migrants come far away from home yep. and the sacrifices and what they give up to be here mm. uh, those are always very compelling to uh, empathize towards yeah. yeah so yeah that's I guess uh, a bit more about how I become so capable and um, interested yeah. yeah it's interesting because it it is definitely not um it doesn't come to me. It feels like it doesn't. It, it didn't come naturally. It is something you cultivated, and having not just that curiosity, but the openness to to just engage with people uh, beyond the surface mm-hmm. and actually engage them as a person. Yeah, because you you mentioned that your friends hearing these stories, and I guess in a sense it kind of shatters the illusion a little bit as well that oh mm-hmm. such wow stories can be happening in my Singapore or my perception of what Singapore is. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious to know um. What paths has your curiosity let you down? Yeah. Because you, you, you do sound like a very curious individual. Mm. Yeah, so I'm curious to know that. So, I mean, in Geylang, it can be quite messy sometimes. Mm. So I've had a, a, a acquaintance in the beer garden. Um, one day, I heard uh, from someone in the morning that he was murdered. So he was found in a... Uh, one of the streets and it was a while before someone called the police because in Geelong generally when you see trouble people tend to shirk away Mm -hmm. because they don't want to get in trouble themselves or they don't want to be interviewed extensively you know about what they saw Uh, so yeah it's it's a kind of news that you hear about and you're like wow you know I just saw him last night Mm. and this happened and how did it happen and um, yeah so it's really the kind of people that you meet that you never know what will happen next. Mm. Uh, so that includes people who are the drug pushers or the people who are addicted. Mm. Um, I've seen some who fall off the, you know, when you're addicted to something and it becomes a spiral and often their lives in parallel are also in some sort of a crisis. Mm. Uh, the spiral that it results, um, you know, them to fall in when they turn to, turn to drugs. It is quite... Um, crazy you mm. know the lives that they used to have versus their present state and moment yep. uh, and of course the drug pushers who uh, get arrested and then they get sent in and then you don't see them for a long time yeah yeah then you hear about them being caught yeah so i guess th- that's where your curiosity for a person whom sometimes i regard some of them as friends mm. you know and you would as a friend, encourage them, you know, after finding out their circumstances to try and bring them out of it. Yep. Um, but, you know, sometimes or oftentimes it is too late by the time that they're caught or they fall into a spiral. Mm. Yeah, so it's, it's always like an uh, interesting friendship, I would say. It's almost like you are there to listen. They, they pour their hearts to you, but um, you, you just know that there will be a day that comes that you know, things will escalate or de-escalate. Yeah. Yeah, both ways. It sounds wildly unpredictable. It sounds like a place, I won't say lawlessness, but 
of unpredictability. Mm. There is no consistent, like let's say you go to Orchard, it is somewhat consistent, like you know what you're going to get, you go yeah. to this mall, so you know what you're going to get. But to me, Geylang feels chaotic. Yeah. Yeah, because there is this pervasive uh, sense of um, anything goes. Yeah. Yeah. If, if, if you walk down the right alley at the right time, at the right moment, something will happen. Yeah. yeah. So it's interesting that you're describing it like this because I think 2013, 2014, the police commissioner described Geylang as a hint of lawlessness. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the hint was what uh, what was interesting. Like, yeah. we call something a hint of, you know, lawlessness. Um, and I think what you described Geylang to be is absolutely right. I think uh, I refer to it as a messy place and mm. that's very unlike Singapore because yeah. in most places it's curated. It's, I think people call it manicured or mm. there's some level of design yep. or strategic planning and yeah. urban planning and urban design yeah. um, in communities but in Geylang it's still relatively messy yeah. and unpredictable yeah. and I, I think that's the beauty of it and it's one of those rare places in Singapore that's left that has this kind of authentic messiness Yeah, uh, I think every city needs a place like this not to lose its soul if yeah. not we'll just all look the same yep Growing up there, what has your perspective and your viewpoint of Geylang been? Yeah, so I think most relative to me, it's what other people think as I interact with them as I grow older, right? Yeah. So I was often laughed at when I tell laughed. people I live in Geylang. Okay. Yeah, like in primary, secondary school, people would be like, oh, you live in Geylang? Like, that's funny and they'll laugh. Mm. Uh, and I guess the reference was to the kind of um, labels that they had on Geylang or the people who go to Geylang yep. or hang out in Geylang. So naturally, your association is with those labels and mm. those people. In army, I remember I was, um, uh, I was called out in front of everyone for living in Geylang and Jeez. they just took turns to ask me questions about the brothels and, okay. and how the system worked, which is the best lanes, KTV yep. bus. And I think that that those moments also got me thinking about um, the pervasive uh, um, uh, perception and interest in Geylang. Geylang was both uh, people think they know a lot about it, and yet also people are fascinated when yep. they hear about it. Yep. Uh, and and I guess that was also what gave me the idea of doing a tour because mm. uh, I think even till today people are like, well, who would you know, pay you money to take them around Geylang, especially Singaporeans, right, who come on my tours. Um, but that's actually the, the the bit that I find fascinating that we don't publicize at all um, and we don't spend any marketing money and it's mm. very low-cost business. And I think the, the sheer reason why we've continued to exist is because these issues are continued uh, to be pervasive in our society and that more people just need to know and the seed of knowledge uh, and awareness is planted when they come on the tour with me in three hours. Yeah. Uh, and for me, I take it as my responsibility to show them, I think not just what they understand or know about Geylang, but really the opposite of what they don't expect to hear or mm. understand about Geylang. Yeah. So social ecosystem, I think uh, that's something you're going to ask me about later on. I would, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so that's really um, the, the idea of how I understand Geylang to be. Just like an ecosystem in a in a pond or in a field, you know, where there are different stakeholders, there are different organisms that yep. exist in equilibrium. Yep. I think that I, that idea uh, in Geylang is what uh, fascinates me and mm. what I love to share with people about. Yep. Yeah. Has it surprised you the consistent success of uh, Citizen Adventures and 
Geelong um, Adventures? Mm, I don't think I've always been like, I mean, celebrating year on year about its continued existence. Mm. Uh, I do hope to, uh, you know, one day uh, uh, have, you know, the whole population of people, you know, in Singapore understand Geelong and appreciate the issues and the uh, vulnerable communities that are within. But, you know, that's, that's only a dream and it will always be a dream. Yeah. I think in every society, as um, I describe Geelong to be a reflection, a mirror of what our society and uh, and our state of uh, priorities are. Mm. Um, it's a reflection of what we deem to be important and thereby uh, people are deemed not important or yep. issues are deemed not important. Yep. So it's always a tension and Geelong as a reflection of society will always have a narrative that's evolving as mm. such. Yeah. So I, I don't think it surprises me that as a business it works. Uh, I think for me, I'm just thankful for being able to continue to do this, to, to do this uh, because it, it has been uh, challenges where you want to do good with social initiatives yep. and we've always been running that on the side, yep. balancing it with time to run the tours. Mm-hmm. And then the tension of needing to, whether to expand the business, to um, sell off to buyers who may be interested. Mm-hmm. Uh, but often with the terms that I'll, be, I'll buy it if you continue running it yep. and you'll be doing it as you know full-time. Yep. I think that's always been the challenge, of, you know, these tensions when you run a business yep. and... Uh, I'm I'm always appreciative of these opportunities that come, um, and the and the partners and and people that I meet along the way, yep. yeah. So it's not something that I always you know think about. Mm. You know, am I successful as the business working out? Uh, we worry about finances sometimes when we spend too much time doing good. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. The pandemic also was tough because I think six months we weren't able to do mm. anything, yep. and uh, the subsequent months were just slowly building back yep. uh, but it's it's really been back in full swing now so it, it's been an interesting phase with the pandemic as well yeah mm. so you mentioned about understanding Geelang and I'm curious to know your thoughts on what does understanding Geelang look like to you yeah. what what does it mean to understand Geelang and uh, what it brings to the I guess the tapestry of what Singapore looks like mm. Yeah, so if Geelong is painted as a social ecosystem, then who are the members of this ecosystem? Mm-hmm. Um, of course, in the pond you have the, um, you know, you have the plants, which are the basic you know, oxygen generation, yeah. water, so fish. You have what you survive. see on the surface. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But you know what you don't see is the bubbles where the oxygen is being generated, mm. and the fish thriving and living off that. Yep. So similarly, I think in Geelong there are these invisible lines of relationship, where if you think of people involved in vice, you mm. may think of them being opposed to the existence of the police or the enforcement of the police. But when you consider them in its totality, you realize that there is some balance or equilibrium uh, in the existence of both. So whether it's the police keeping the vices in check mm. so it doesn't spread beyond Geelong, mm-hmm. or whether it's the vice keeping the police uh, in business so that um, they are contained within Geelong. Yep. So on both uh, it's like a contract, like, it's like an unspoken contract between yeah. these two entities. Yeah, 
And if one side, you know, forces the hand on the other, if the police really shut down Geylang, mm. would that be the end of vices? I think that's really the big question, right? And we've not done that yet or taken mm-hmm. the risk to do that because containment strategy is the reason why Geylang exists. So, mm. you know, this tension really brings about the idea that uh, we may see one side as uh, uh, clearly white, one side as clearly black, mm. or both opposing, but actually they are a relationship. Yep. between yeah so these interconnections is what i'm trying to identify and un- help people to understand i think understanding Geylang involves understanding not just stakeholders which are quite visible from the surface but the relationships that they have within one another is it oftentimes difficult to to get these nuance across to to people um that might have no conception of these grander forces at play yeah yeah because singapore is touted to be a very pragmatic society. Pragmatic meaning there's always like a right way and a wrong way. I mean, it's, it's, it's mm. kind of inculcated in uh, a lot of the education system growing up. Maybe it's mm. different today, but that was how it was back then. There was one right answer and if you don't get it, you're wrong. Mm. So it, it kind of forced like this really binary way of thinking, but it sounds as though Geelang mm. is all but nuance. It's all, everything yes, and yeah. nuance, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so one common response when people find out the tour is three hours is that, why so long? Does it include food? (laughs) So unfortunately, the answer is no, it does not include food. And it's three hours long simply because there's so much nuances. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, I think starting the tour, it was the tension of like, oh, you know, how do I convince people to come on the tour three hours long to walk with me? pay me, walk through Geylang, a place that they can easily access. But I think that's where the value of the narrative uh, really comes in really Mm. strongly. I think the fact that people um, find that the tour is not just interesting, but I think for many of them, even beneficial for them as a Singaporean or someone who's living here to understand um, this country better Mm. and appreciate the final uh, balances that exist to make it so you know pristine and uh, beautiful as it is so whether it's issue of migrant workers you know and the conditions that they live or that they work and the NGOs in Geylang a few of them in Geylang that serve them the gaps in the system uh, or whether it's the kind of contrast in the the jobs uh, that they do that no Singaporeans would aspire a career in Mm. Um, I think these balances of nuances are important to come together it's not you know good to paint a picture that migrant workers are poor thing but it's really important to paint a picture of what safeguards in policy that could really help protect them Mm. and be a sustainable uh, workforce to be available and competitive in singapore uh, for us to continue this you know status quo and we see that in sectors like healthcare during the pandemic, right? Where suddenly Singapore um, was finding ourselves competing with so mm. many other countries who are offering people to just walk walk up to their shores with um, applications to be healthcare workers. And they were invited to bring their families and their mm. children. Uh, and the pay, the pay package was really attractive. So that's really what we're reckoning with in this new world. I think it's not enough to just pay lip service to pity workers but it's really about um, 
putting your advocacy where policy safeguards should be and legislative change need to keep up with the protection of these populations. So this is really what the seed of advocacy and education is uh, is, is, is what we're trying to achieve here. Yeah. So all this within three hours. <laughs> In some way, yeah. Yeah. I think it's called a seed, not a plant. Mm. Yeah, we're not planting a tree. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. And I think, th- yeah, what surprised me is the people who come. Mm. I think the really random um, from policymakers, from people who are wealthy, the haves, you know, down to students, people who are passionate in social causes and uh, entrepreneurship even and young people with bright ideas with the energy and zeal to change things to people who have been stuck in their careers and you know wanting to do more to help others it's really been a spectrum of people that we have on our tours and yep. I think that's where I appreciate the the being able to accommodate this diversity yep. and how this narrative is re- relatable for all of them yeah mm. so we talk about narrative and I'm curious to know um how has the narrative for conduct these, conducting these tours changed and mm. how do you imagine it to change for, I guess, the foreseeable future? Mm. Yeah. So I think when we first started, it was just Geylang, but then we branched to Dakota as well. Mm. Why Dakota? Dakota? Uh, Dakota Crescent in 2014 when it was announced that they would be uh, relocating the residents and demolishing the flats. Um, 2015, we started Dakota Adventures, uh, and it started as an advocacy uh, movement to conserve the place. Interesting. Yeah, so heritage uh, aside and conservation aside, I think what we were advocating for was a preservation of narratives because the social narratives that Dakota Crescent held through the residents who still live there was like mind-blowing, like the kind of uh, experiences they had parallel to you know Singapore's growth across the years mm. the flats being built in 1959 the first populations moving from kampongs to HDBs at a point of time called SIT and mm. then subsequent uh, relocation the, the constant narrative of being relocated yep. um, and evicted yep. some would call that uh, and the sacrifices in the name of development and how life changed for them you know as a child the what they do for play, where they go, places that they can see, animals that they find, all the way to, you know, now how kids occupy themselves, where we play. It's so vastly different that it's crazy how within that one generation, uh, Singapore has developed. So the social narrative was really powerful in Dakota Crescent whilst the residents were still living there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think for for us, it was to highlight the, the social narratives of the place layered with also the conservation uh, and architectural significance uh, with the hope that the government would uh, decide or you know rethink about demolishing them all. Uh, so in 2017, it was announced that 6 out of 15 blocks would be conserved um, thanks to the collective uh, conservation efforts. So that's really been you know another narrative that we've been trying to shift. But at the core of it is not because we were interested to uh, uh, interested to find out or capable about the stories of many of them who are elderly but the heart of it was really the understanding of relocation and what it meant for old people who lived in this place for mm. decades the ne- the network of relationships yep. and neighbours that they had formed the kind of codependency that they had with one another 
the relationships with the service providers of the senior activity center and what the place meant to them as an older person and how if you um, pluck out a, you know, transplant a young tree with its roots to a new place, probably there's a chance that a young tree would still be able to survive and even thrive. Mm-hmm. But if you transplant an old tree and pluck it out with its roots and all and place it in a new soil, new environment, there will definitely be some damage and cost mm-hmm. to it. And for us, that was a clear trade-off in you know the decision of development um, with that decision to shift. Yep. And it will only be uh, a lot more that we do, uh, whether it's such relocations or such need for development. So narratives, I think, are the medium in which we operate. Mm-hmm. Um, narratives are powerful because uh, I think when people come on the tour, they don't expect to hear something that's so relatable as Singaporeans or people based yep. in Singapore. And for many, it's a changing of their worldview of what they had understood previously to what they now can see and understand for themselves. And it's really the invitation to be immersed in the community to see it for yourself, to um, be part of the idea that we could reimagine how we treat populations differently and how we could speak up for them, you know, just in our own areas, whether at home with our seniors, mm. grandparents, and that's where change starts yeah. from home. Yeah. yeah. Before we move on, I want to touch on this. Why do you think preservation is important? And why do you think, if so, why do you think it's important? Yeah, so I think preservation of, um, you mean old buildings or, or, like, or things, is like it? Like you, you mentioned old buildings, culture, stories, the community, yeah. Mm, yeah. So I think preservation of narratives, um, I mean, for, for that as a, as a, as a story, uh, is definitely important because it's easy to forget. It's easy to forget where we came from. Mm. It's easy to not relate to stories of the past. Like if you tell a young person, oh, last time policemen wear shorts or last time people have to eat tapioca during the war, right? Like it just is a fact to them. It's yep. like, okay, fine. Like, good for them and look where we are now. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to relate to the actual person mm-hmm. unless you are hearing it you know, from him or her and you're hearing the context behind it, the richness of the narrative comes in with the, the experience of hardship, the emotions that he or she speaks from. Uh, and really that context is so important um, to be captured mm. for the essence of that narrative to be uh, related, re- yep. related. So I think preservation of narratives is definitely uh, important. It's, I think as societies develop, um, and become more uh, wealthy, then they start to look back and they start to uh, uh, be, you know, less scarcity mindset and start to take stock of what what they have and document. Yeah, so those are really important. And my fear is we we obsess on uh, selectively conserving or preserving narratives or even monuments or artifacts where this becomes the story of this generation or this uh, population of people or this community. Because I think when we start to be selective about what we pick and choose, then that's where it becomes skewed to that particular narrative and it's mm. enshrined forever. Yep, yep. Because there's no one left in that generation yep. to speak up about themselves because there are no buildings left to relate to mm. and that's all we have. Yeah. So I think the artifacts or physical monuments or 
items need to augment the narratives and they provide that depth of insight to the place. Uh, and I think in Dakota, when we were writing the conservation report, one mm. statement that always stuck with me was, does the place make the people or does the people make the place? Yep. And for us, the answer to that at the end of this journey was that the people made the place. Mm. And so as it continues in Singapore, the people will continue making the place. And thereby we should remember the people through the place that they lived and had these uh, stories through. I mean, but in Singapore, we sure do love our monuments and we sure do love uh, jamming these stories of community and the past into one specific uh, sculpture. Mm. We, we sure do, do love that. So I'm curious to know, um, what is the, what in, what in your opinion is like the right way to preserve something like this while trying to be forward-looking and I guess progressive? Because it always feels as though uh, Singapore has a very weird uh, relationship with the past. We are constantly wanting to develop some new thing, a new mall. We're constantly tearing down a mall just to build something up again. And there's always this like uh, forward churn to, to move forward, to, to, to build bigger things, to build newer things. Mm. But the, the past is often relegated. Oh, you have this, uh, just this plot of land, just, just to reminisce, while everything else around it is new. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely the case for what we see in communities where gentrification and development just picks up its pace and soon you turn back 10 years down the road and you realize it's pretty unrecognizable. Yep. Uh, I think we have to ask what cost does this development come for? You know, when we look at economic costs or growth, you know, the, the land exchanging hands, buying, selling, mm. uh, context of how, you know, property market and the frenzy that we have seen in recent years, especially, uh, it's the idea of that new is always good and you know it's always hyped up yep. uh, and then after that it's launched and then it just becomes a place um, but I think what we need to consider is what is lost through this process uh, for old places um, it's not possible to keep every old place or old uh, monument or artifact in mm. its original condition but I think if we can find an in-between for development and yet conserving or preserving some of these narratives, uh, that would be the ideal with the rate of development that we have been doing. But that's it. It tends to become tokenistic, right? You choose mm. and select certain narratives and this becomes that narrative. And you prop it up, yeah. And then, yeah, you prop it up uh, and that becomes that. Mm. So I think the balance is... Uh, also continues the question of costs, where if the next generation only selectively remember certain narratives, then what would we potentially risk losing? You know, where um, a certain generation is perceived by the young as a certain trait, um, and then the next generation has a certain trait, and that comes with the labels yep. of millennials, Gen Z, Gen yep. X, and all that. Then that causes more divisions in society mm. and that causes um, people to label and also further ostracize one another mm. who might not seem to be on the same wavelength because you're from that generation. And I think that's what monuments and places that are old would stand to teach us if we had kept them. Um, so buildings like Dakota Crescent where 
when it was designed in 1955, the headlines in the newspaper was this would be the Hyde Park for Singapore. The Hyde Park was a reference to London mm. and it was invoking that sense of serenity through that headlines because it meant an integration of green spaces. And how powerful that statement when you uh, declare it and then you design yeah. it as such. Powerful. And in Dakota Crescent today, it's it's known for its mosquito breeding now because it's <laughs> hoarded up. But that's because it's absolutely yep. green and the mm. trees in there are amazing. Yeah. Yep. So it's still hoarded up now. If any of you listeners try and go in, uh, you'll be disappointed. But you can still see the trees from uh, outside. And just remember that within that cluster of trees, there's also this Duff playground that's been conserved as well. So the Mosaic Tau playgrounds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's one there that's the shape of a duff, but yeah, so it's still in there and that's been conserved as well. Uh, and it's really that richness of that narrative that uh, icon like this holds uh, beyond just like your Instagramable merchandise and your know, products that we may consume. Yep. They're cute, but what does the monument itself stand to hold as an opportunity? The narrative that our young would learn and also the complexity of these narratives um, and why are they important to keep and at what cost if they were lost. Yep. Yeah. Like this idea of cost and I guess value is a rather interesting topic to talk about because I think up to today and I think up to recently, the idea of value is primarily speaking about money, about how much economic value but I guess in recent years, we've been trying to make a pivot with regards to not everything has to be about the economical value, mm. while we, there are other types of definitions to the word value that is not purely economical. And it seems as though you're talking about these uh, intangible, valuable things that if we do pluck it and we do remove it, mm. it's gone forever because you can't replicate it, you can't replace it. It's yeah. irreplaceable in that sense, even though it might not bring any economical value to it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, in my um, when we were doing the advocacy of Dakota Crescent, there was this whole idea of um, the impact assessments that were being done, right? So um, that's where I delve deeper into types of impact assessments beyond just economic impact assessments. You know, where the cost of uh, decision of development is worth the economic investment mm -hmm. or the economic trade-offs, for that matter. So that's what impact assessments hope to balance, yep. you know, the cost versus the value and then see whether the value supersedes cost to justify the development. Yep. But actually there are models of heritage impact assessments, environmental impact assessments, even social impact assessments yep. where the metrics of measurements of these costs are taking into account the social human perspective, uh, the uh, environmental impacts uh, the heritage value of, of places are benchmarked and assessed based on these mm. factors, which are not really existed or, or existing or costed in, in the economical uh, impact assessments. Yeah. Uh, so that was really fascinating because I think it was the call to relook at how we prioritize development because mm. if we follow economic impact assessments, it will always be worth it at the rate of you know value of land going up. But nowadays, we have started to consider environmental impact assessments in our decisions yep. uh, in development projects. And it's really good to see how they are 
uh, also not following uh, tokenistic uh, metrics of measure, yep. but they are really looking at things more holistically today. Yep. Uh, the next step would be social impact assessments, right? Where you consider the people and the populations that will be affected. Mm. Uh, but typically this might be more relevant for uh, land where there are historical- uh, Significance. Significance, yeah. yeah. Or contestation by different populations. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it's really fascinating to understand how we measure cost in all aspects. Yep. When you look at it from a social environmental perspective, the cost, the valuation of cost changes and it is clear at some points that it is no longer feasible for development because how these costs will amount to. So for example, when you shift an old tree with embedded roots to a new place, mm. Uh, what you don't see is the cost of the tree settling in and the subsequent health costs mm. associated with uh, the, you know, this pulling out of roots, planting it back, forcing it to grow somewhere. And uh, oftentimes the intangibles, like the networks that they have with their neighbors, the friendships that they share and how important it is for their well-being. Um, the neighbor who takes care of the kid and becomes the informal childcare when working parents have yep. to work and their child is on MC. And these are really intangible costs that will only be understood if someone actually goes down on the ground to measure them. Mm. And that's the last point about cost, right? If we are costing them from the office or costing them from uh, as an exercise to measure development and trade-offs, uh, how much of these intangibles does that capture? Uh, and how would one be even aware that these intangibles exist exactly. if they're not on the ground? Yeah. yeah. Would you say we are trending in the right direction with regards to how we will want to utilize and develop the, the existing land or property that we have in Singapore? Because I think I remember, I think recently where they wanted to, there's a lot more considerations that you mentioned about the environmental impact because I mm. believe Singapore is home to uh, several unique species of, of insects, of crabs and everything. But mm. it also does depend on who you are asking these questions to. The average person might not care that Singapore is home to like a very unique species of crab. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So it also does depend on what, I guess, the, 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 who is, who are all these things being told to as well and how mm. are they going to uh, balance uh, all these tangents? Because you mm. have the economical impact, you have the environment, the social, I guess the historical and the traditional. Yeah. And the social. It's like mm. seven different tangents someone has to balance just to develop like a plot of land. Yeah. <laughs> Do you feel like we're trending in the right direction? So you might end up being stuck in paralysis. You There's know, grid law. To, yeah, basically. Yeah. yeah. Uh, consider all these trade-offs. So I, I do agree that we have improved for sure from our lack of measure of environmental costs previously to now taking that into account, especially for areas where there are huge um, uh, potential biodiversity yep. and they are more vulnerable because of the um, clearing or absence yep. of land if we were to develop it. So I think that's definitely a step in the right direction. Um, I think I'm also conscious of how there are often uh, trade-offs of uh, social trade-offs in the sense of the land development being necessary for us to have housing and all mm. that and to ensure supply of housing is, yep. is, is constant. Excuse me, but the but the flip side is also with um how many of these uh, decisions that need to be made uh will come with, I think leadership 
that's really important. Um, and I think we've only been able to push the needles with you know these people like Desmond Lee, who's been a huge champion for environmental sustainability, mm. being in place of leadership to push the needle of that. So it's it's really quite you know interesting to see um, some of these needing uh, quite a bit of political will as well for the needle to move. Yep. Um, and I think we. Yeah, I don't think we'll be in a state of paralysis because Singapore being Singapore, we are super efficient in things <laughs> and we will find a way to measure or justify that we have measured these in way, one way or another. Yeah. But I think the danger of that is the tokenistic measure that we might use mm. as a result of that need to justify in the near future. Yeah, yeah so it, it's quite complex in the sense that we have reached this epitome of development, right? Where we are not only... Um, scrutinizing the details in which development happens but we have that luxury to do so whereas mm. countries overseas they'll be lucky if anything was built there That's or true. if the project was even completed That's true. we are scrutinizing to that level of detail and that's honestly just a luxury to me yeah so I, I think it's important to find the balance then in development I'm not saying that we should just halt development or just stall and move into that space of needing to justify. Yep. I think there has to be clear um, markers in which we understand uh, conservation yeah. and the consideration or option to keep uh, or to develop. Yeah, so we, we, we still have a lot more land to go. Mm. Um, and I think it's, we are seeing land being reset, right? Where swaths of land like last time in Pongo just green spaces and all that yep. and now in Tengah where we've cleared and then you see how Pongo is a smart digital district you know it's fully transformed now yep. and with even more things coming in the pipeline and how that is like a land reset that's happening in Tengah right now mm. the announcement of the shifting of ACS and the building of new developments and businesses and all that I think that's really the new exciting frontier of how Singapore will grow mm -hmm. uh, with these resets. And it's also a chance to be bold in making decisions in how we think about the conservation or protection of these lands uh, and how we justify the development, if any. Yeah. How has Geelong changed across the years? Mm. What have you experienced? Yeah, so in terms of the physical changes, I think the kind of businesses um, that come and go based on the, you know, for old businesses, normally it's just people don't uh, use these things or it's mm. no longer economical to produce it in-house. Yep. It's easier to outsource. It's cheaper to get it from Malaysia or China. So some of these like industries or factories that used to exist, many of them have shut down or closed. Mm. Uh, for the shop houses, I think interestingly, we've been seeing uh, a lot more uh, businesses that you'll never expect to open in Geelang. Okay. Uh, so these days, I think what's popular is communal li living. So there are a few uh, businesses who are uh, having co-living spaces, converting mm. old shop houses, even entire apartments uh, to be a co-living space. Uh, so that's not, it's, it's quite a novel idea. It's... Um, a good way of uh, um, utilizing uh, space in Keelang and refreshing the old buildings mm -hmm. and shop houses, yeah. which otherwise would have been quite undesirable 
a place to live in as the red light district is. Mm. The other thing I think that Geelong is uh, becoming uh, is a bit more hipster. Uh, a bit a lot I was slower. Not expecting that. <laughs> yeah, so there's like Geelong Drip City, which is this uh really uh fascinating place to have coffee. Okay. Like, yeah, so they they have done out the place really well, and they've a really extensive coffee menu. Uh, and yeah, there are just um the first cafe serving waffle ice cream open in Geelong as well recently. Okay. A couple of years back, and then we also had um. Uh, places with really cheap alcohol but attracting like cool crowds instead mm-hmm. of previously where it was cheap alcohol but sleazy crowds yeah. yeah so I think Geelong is definitely becoming a bit more hip uh, of course it is still uh, uh, a lot slower because of the presence of the red light district still mm-hmm. a pretty undesirable place for a business to open and invite customers to as of now mm. unless you're hipster enough right <laughs> yeah. yeah so uh i think that's on the business front in terms of the communities of people who live there largely Geelong has been rented out um, mm. many of the units are rented out whether it's to low-age migrant workers or to expats um there's very little singaporeans still staying there i must say um, the ones who live there who might be seniors really comfortable with their house yep. live there a long time yep. some of them are frail so eventually when they are unable to care for themselves they'll move out and they rent out their place yep. Yeah. so Geelong has become quite a rental economy right now mm-hmm. uh, a lot of new condominiums as well being built because of the Paliba Air Base mm-hmm. being uh, shifted soon so many developers are wanting to get in on the land before uh, the height restrictions are lifted and all that. Yeah, so that's interesting because you see really old apartments, old, old shop houses, and then nestled within rows of new condominiums. Mm. Uh, and that's just the contrast of old and new that is more visible now. Yeah. Do you think or do you foresee a time in the future where Geelong won't be as stigmatized as how we grew up knowing it. So as long as the red light district is there, I think being a relatively more conservative society, I would say um, the stigma of the red light district will still be a stigma. Mm. Um, I think what might change is, I mean, definitely if the red light district is announced to be uh, shifted or shut down, then definitely, you know, the stigma is gone yep. because it no longer exists. But if you're saying whether more people would be willing or open to the idea of staying in the red light district or opening a business there, uh, I think conceptually we seem like we are ready for that. But in reality, I think it's hard. Interesting. Yeah. So businesses may not may may consider opening if they are you know bold enough, but not many will survive, unfortunately. Yeah, so case in point would be some um, cafes who have attempted uh, to open. Uh, but, you know, because of various reasons from lack of parking mm. to <laughs> not safe for females to walk, <laughs> yep. you know, yep. at night or having certain incidents. Yeah, those are really just the nitty gritty things yep. that unfortunately don't, don't make it work out. So I think it's a proof of concept that needs to happen. Um, not yet. But maybe in the near future, we yep. just need the more businesses to come in before we get there, I guess. Yep. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier in the podcast about you 
talking and interacting with people from all walks of lives while you were growing up in Geelang. Um, I'm curious to know how this interaction with these individuals, um, outside of like the bubble of what a Singaporean is, how did it teach you about people and identity and your own identity as a Singaporean? How did it inform that? Yeah, so one thing I learned early on that was that uh, there are a lot of uh, people who are non-Singaporeans amongst us. Mm. So it was like when I go to school in secondary school, um, I would see like rows of workers waiting for their lorries to pick them up with their equipment and all that. And uh, when I go back home, then I'll see uh, beautiful girls like looking like they're going to prom, mm. just waiting by the side of the streets, mm. waiting to be picked up or waiting to go somewhere or walking through the streets. Uh, even further on later into the night. Most of them were foreign. And mm. then, of course, you saw, um, I would see also the uh, expat community and, you know, with Geelong rental being quite cheap. Uh, the wild parties that I would hear, you know, from loud music mm. uh, flitting through Geelong in the streets when you walk and you hear the rankers laughter and, you know, the um, drunk people staggering through sometimes. <laughs> yeah, so that really... Uh, from early on helped me to realize that actually in, in Geelang it's um, there's just so many non-Singaporeans that mm. it feels like you are not in Singapore yep. if I were to describe it from a third person perspective yep. and I think one comment that I got a lot was oh there's so much uh, nice food in Geelang and then followed by oh but a lot of them is China Chinese food right because there are so many LED lights with uh, neon lights with mm. Chinese words and characters around there um, but what many people may not realize, actually, there's a lot of Bangladeshi food, Indian food um, in Geelang as well because of the high density of migrant workers. Mm. But yeah, because uh, maybe they're not as obvious. They don't use LED lights. that They're not so visible. So it's really when you walk through, you hear, you see, you hear different languages, you see different cultures, you um, smell different scents and different foods, and you see different levels of... Uh, hygiene in preparing, yep. you know, being consistently the same, you know, uh, in terms of unhygienic, um, that you realize that that in in Singapore we are a lot more diverse than we think. Mm -hmm. So I think that idea from early on um, got me to realize the diversity of population, and I think uh, for most Singaporeans who live in regular neighborhoods, they may not have been mm -hmm. able to appreciate or see that. Which is also why it's uh, the the lack of these opportunities to see which resulted in a lack of opportunities to understand them or even know them. Mm. How many Singaporeans are friends with a low-wage migrant worker? I think that thought by itself speaks for itself in terms of this division that has naturally uh, occurred. Yep. Uh, as a result of, you know, whether it's policy in terms of where we house migrant workers, in terms of the kind of day-to-day -day lives that they lead or the mm. general stigma that society has against um, them, whether it's a population or the jobs that they do. I think these stigma continue to stick um, and that's really because of the lack of opportunity to have been able to interact. Mm. Uh, so that's really my privilege for growing up in Geelong. I think the diversity of... Um, the people just around me helped me appreciate Singapore a lot more. Being able to cater to these groups 
many of them with the aspirational Singapore dream where they mm-hmm. come here, they earn enough, they send back home, uh, they spend decades away from their family, mm. some never get married, some get married but never see their children. Yep. And then after 20, 30 years, they return home only to be able to start businesses, yep. have a big house, buy lots of land, have workers under them. And then it's the Singapore dream that many other workers after them would have seen, would have heard and won for themselves. And I think that's what Singapore is always positioning ourselves, the, the land of opportunity mm-hmm. of um, where if you are keen to work, you're hardworking, you can earn a living and you can be more. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think, where it also comes with protection, uh, whether it's of policies, mm. safeguards of interests, mm. and also in the global competition, being able to provide uh, incentives or being attractive for workers who still want to come here yeah. instead of the many other options that they have today in a diversified and globalized world. Yeah. So that's really what we're reckoning with and that's why I learned from Geylang. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it feels as though we have to move beyond just purely talking about economics but let's say talking about or touching on a sensitive uh, social issues such as uh, the migrant workers like mm. we have to move beyond just seeing them as uh, numbers but seeing them as actual humans and you mentioned something about them having the the Singaporean dream because if you look into our history it's what people from uh, other Southeast Asian countries mm. came to Singapore to actually do it's just that we we just didn't have to see it because it was our I think our great great grandparents who actually mm. went through that mm. yeah exactly I think it's interesting when you meet Singaporeans and even you ask them like which generation Singaporean are, are you mm. there is some level of difference if someone is a first gen Singaporean versus a fourth or third gen yep. Singaporean in terms of identity in terms of uh, relatability in terms of even hunger for success or for jobs and I think that is uh, one that naturally comes with you know the recency of when one became Singaporean uh, and that comes with the associations of what they had to go through. And that's more relatable if you're first-gen Singaporean because mm. you see your parents or yourself even going through all that just to be here. Yeah. Um, and I think most Singaporeans do not appreciate the privilege of being Singaporean until we go overseas, mm-hmm. until we see what it's like out there. Uh, what do they call it? The lottery, birth lottery, right? The spawn pointer. <laughs> yeah, where you yeah. spawn <laughs> I've never heard of that. (laughs) You just got lucky in your spawn point and I guess you want to go further down to it. Your your home base, your your characteristics, your traits. Yeah. Yeah. Just got really lucky to be born, let's say, just in a, let's say even even a middle income Chinese family in Singapore. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's really like a perspective thing, Mm. right? It's about how you see your place of birth and how you imagine Singapore um, not just giving you in terms of like a um, in terms of welfare in terms of opportunities but really what you can do or give as well to Singapore to be able to envision what it will be in the future yeah I do so, guess it's easy to take things for granted when you have never known um, anything else or you have never known what uh, anything lesser could be like you have never actually seen what anything lesser could be like maybe that's why traveling overseas and you really see uh let's say the poverty that mm. people are actually living in it makes you kind of 
reflect and appreciate, hey, we have a functioning transport system. We have we are really safe at night. You can go jogging at fucking 3 a.m. Mm. Things will be fine. Yeah, yeah exactly. What exactly. For example, if you go to, let's say, like a Western country, you walk down the street at night, there's no guarantee that you'll be safe there because of the, the persistent danger mm. Yeah, over, over places like that. Yeah. Yeah, so it's really crazy when you see how, what kind of lives others lead, mm. the kind of context that they grew up in and versus what we have here. It's, it's really always relative. Um, so I feel like that's really a, a insight or a glimpse that I've learned from the diversity in Geylang. When you see in the face of scarcity how people can be creative, mm. you know, being able to save money through creative ways of cooking things yep. differently, you know, using rice cooker for every meal that mm. they have for migrant workers or to really... Uh, be so generous despite having so little. Mm. I think those are really moments where I stop to think about the kind of perspective that they have and their upbringing, their lives, experiences and and how lucky I am to be here mm. but yet how important it is for me to know and appreciate that. Yeah. And I think that is also the spirit that we should have when we travel Um we always make fun of Malaysians' exchange rate and all that, but if they had the shit together, we would really die, yeah. right? <laughs> Unfortunately, and yeah. I think not many people recognize that. And mm. yeah, so it's really about relative perspectives and how we can appreciate things better yeah. uh, and what we have here. Yeah, yeah that, that I find really important. How has knowing um, all these gradations, I guess nuance of different people and different identities, how has it reframed or affected, I guess, your own individual pursuits? Like what you wanted to pursue, I guess, in your life? Yeah. So I never knew like what I wanted to do for work. I mm. just knew I didn't want to work in like an office, a regular okay. office. Um, and I think as I started my journey, it was about... Uh, just going where the wind blows you to and opportunities come and then you take it on and it's always a new challenge every mm. day. Um, and I think that spirit came from from Geylang as well where for many it's about um, being very fun, open to new ideas and um, having spontaneous conversations or doing things spontaneously that mm. really got me into that idea. Um and kind of led me on in how I do my work when I was uh, starting out the business. So I think for me, what guided me was really the idea of um, how these issues will be what we leave the next generation to inherit. Uh, foundationally, it's also whether our development today is sustainable. Mm. And seeing the crisis of the future what do we do now to safeguard or change its direction? Which is also the reason why I joined Elder Care. Mm. Um, the experience that I had in Dakota Crescent really shaped me to see the importance of community, the importance of a good support system versus the absence of a support system or how lonely and how in the spiral of you know health and conditions yep. of loneliness that come with it. So 
I think we've heard about the aging population in Singapore. It is referred to as a silver tsunami for a reason, not a silver wave or silver surf. Tsunami, jeez, okay. Yeah, because the stats just don't lie. Yeah. The stats are 1 in 10 in 2015 above the age of 65. In 2030, 1 out of 4 citizens will be above the age of 65. Oh, and that's in 7 years' time. Yep. So this is essentially what we are also passing on to our next generation to inherit. Yep. Our perception of aging is still that it's largely burdensome. People mm. don't see it as a, a flourishing idea, right? When um, I mentioned it just now, it was also with the perspective that we don't want just uh, people to age as is, you know, in terms of slowly having organs to fail, mm. health to decline. Yep. But we want the idea of being able to have a, a new life when you retire. The next milestone mm -hmm. as Singaporeans become uh, wealthier, healthier, yep. we die you know, further down. You live longer, basically. Yeah, Yeah. sorry, that's what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and yeah, the, the whole idea of longevity economy as a, you know, an idea concept. Yep. Uh, versus, you know, silver economy or silver uh, tsunami with these connotations. I think these are really perspectives that we have not caught on, yep. that we have not had revolutionary new methods of um, managing, you know, the situation of the silver tsunami. Yep. So the facts, the stats, unfortunately, don't, wouldn't change mm. and in fact are worsening as our population fertility ratio, you know, it's not correcting and improving. We will leave a greater number of seniors with a smaller number of young people yeah. by 2030, yeah. which is just that benchmark mm -hmm. and then further on, it'll just get worse from there. And, and that's really horrifying for me. Yeah. So, I guess urgent change needed to start earlier on. But of course, that's where I am now. Yeah. And I think that's where I am invigorated to do things new and in my little scope of influence, be able to also um, try and uh, practice new ideas yeah. and change in the organization that I'm in. Yeah. Uh, and with the resources that the organization has as well and the uh, different functions. Yeah, so people always ask, is it a big difference, you know, with running your own business and then now in a company? And I did say that I never wanted to work for a company as well. And I think the, the, the motivation is different mm. when you are running your own business. It's very uphill. Every day really is a battle to fight for more resources, to advocate. You're putting out different fires. Yeah, exactly. Um, in organization, you still put out fires, but I guess it's a bit more um, planned for. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, a bigger hose. <laughs> yeah, and 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 there are just um, just resources that are you know available internally and that you can leverage on. And um, yeah, so so I I get to appreciate both sides now. Yeah, uh, and. My yeah, I think people always say like, I wonder how long you'll last in your job, kind of thing. In when I joined Saint Luke's, yeah, uh, and it's true because I never knew how I would react to working in an organization. Yeah, uh, it's been more than one and a half years now. Wonderful. So yeah, it's been 
I'm still here, so yeah. thankfully. Good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> so, in, in in mentioning, I'm curious to know how what are the what are the differences you you see or you notice in running Geelang Adventures and running like this whole conversation about the societal issues of Geelang and everything and doing elder care. Is there any uh, similarities? Is there any differences? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So I think the objective is quite different mm. when I look at narratives and tours and the seed of uh, education or awareness. Um, it's really different from the um, the state that I'm in in St. Luke's where we're actually doing things and um, these models of care, these um, processes that we set up and the functions that we create and the impact that we create in the lives of seniors that we are actively working mm. with, mm. Um, it's a lot more tangible, but at the back, it's also a lot more um, strategic because you get to plan ahead and you get to really imagine how things can be and should move towards mm. now. Yeah, so it's really a different dimension of strategy, I would say, where if you are on the ground all the time and you are you know, running around your tail, yeah. putting up fires, um, it's a different context in which you operate. And objectives of advocacy are quite different as well. In St. Luke's, it's really the proof of concept. Um, and it is only if we succeed that we know it works. Mm, sure. <laughs> right? Yeah. Is um, it like a very big, like very big picture uh, activations and I guess vision compared to something more on the ground? Yeah. So it could be conceptual, mm. but it goes all the way to point of activation and operationalizing it with the resources of the organization. And it's about building the working model or prototype of the mm. solution that can be seeded elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really important work because if we conceptually dream of it, imagine it, it the, the the proof is in the pudding, right? That's mm -hmm. the quote. Um, and that's really the game changer for the future of aging, if you ask me. Um, the model of care that we take and how we are able to leverage on communities, yep. uh, resources within, and it's a whole of village effort to raise a child, but it's even more a whole of community approach to take care of a senior yeah. and flourish, really help a senior to flourish in their later years. So it's not going to be a one-by-one one kind of effort, but it's going to be a model yeah. that has to change. Yeah. yeah. So what about the aging situation? Are we as a society not talking about or have we often overlooked? Mm. I think in advocacy, aging is just not sexy enough as a cause. Mm. If you look at causes that are popular amongst youths, um, yeah, often when I speak to schools, students always like, want to do stuff with animals or mm -hmm. environment yeah. or young people, children, mental health. Yep. I think these are uh, noble causes to go down and to be involved in. Um, but I think aging just isn't very popular. And it could be also because it's intimidating for most young people. Um, and for us as humans as well, the natural tendency to go with something that you're familiar with. In this case, definitely not a stranger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. 
or someone with high care needs that yep. might not be even to be able to communicate. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think the tension in society is um, we, we, we pick and choose our causes and unfortunately the, the cause of elderly or aged care is something that will continue to grow mm. um, and become a bigger issue in the near future. So take, for example, caregiving, mm -hmm. right? It's a very noble day-to-day -day and a very mundane thing. Yep. When you're caregiving for someone, it's you follow the same routine every yep. day, but then there are days where routines change because the mood changes, yep. the behavior changes, medical status changes, and your caregiving responsibilities surge all of a sudden. Mm. And there's no rest for that. And caregiving is so underrated, mm -hmm. you know, as a service to not just that person, but to humanity, because how many of us would be willing to quit our jobs, mm -hmm. you know, and give our lives for decades sometimes to care for someone. Yeah. And this goes to even uh, children with special needs, persons with disabilities, yep. and of course seniors as they yeah. age with the medical crisis that will come. So I think on one hand, we see a proportion who outsource caregiving, to domestic helpers, mm. to institutions, to homes. Uh, some who reject the idea of even caregiving or taking on the responsibility, um, dumping them in nursing homes yeah. or even in JB, right? You've heard of stories of that because it's cheaper. Um, and for many of these, I think the idea is to ask ourselves, uh, how certain would you be that it will not happen to yourself? <laughs> Right when yep. we reach 60, 70, 80. At one point of time, will the person around us who is responsible to caregive for us mm. give up on us? And where have they learned that from? Yeah. Right. It's actually from us as a society. So it's always important to, you know, be respectful, be mindful of the needs of seniors and to be empathetic and understanding. But it's really in the mundane that we just take it for granted that uh, yeah, we'll figure it out when it comes. Mm. But if we don't prepare the resources to do so as a community, then we'll all be left to fend for ourselves when the time comes. And that's dangerous. A dire warning. Yeah, because it is what it is. Yeah, With No capacity in our nursing homes, in our daycare centers. It's a whole of Singapore issue. Mm. Yeah, But it also feels like an issue or problem where there is no easy solution to it. It is not a very clear-cut solution, do this, do that. But everything you would want to try or want to implement, there will be a trade-off because ultimately it comes down to you can ignite, you, you can you can do uh, top-down policies, but a lot of these, it comes down to the individual and to how how do you want to do it mm. and how do you want to take care of their, their elderly citizens. Yeah, so... Uh, the plug for the government is the Healthier SG plan. Okay. <laughs> right. what, what is that? So that's being rolled out now. Uh, I think the idea is that by 2024, all of us will be uh, attached to a GP in each of our neighborhoods. Okay. It will be like the family doctor. They will see you regularly. So the idea is that they will have 
let's say you identify conditions and then they will prescribe you medication yeah. but they also prescribe you social prescriptions so the idea of prescribing you activities so if you have high blood pressure I'll prescribe you to participate in this activity once a week at this active aging center nearby social prescriptions will be a thing soon I've never heard of social prescriptions but it makes sense now yeah, yeah. gotcha okay <laughs> Uh, and then yeah. parallel to that would be the development of these active aging centers to be able to accommodate um, these uh, inflows of seniors from community to come in to participate and uh, engage yeah. and uh, meaningfully, purposefully uh, inspired, you know, to do more, not just for themselves to exercise to keep fit, yeah. but to volunteer, to do more for others, to look out for one another, visit one another. And that's really the concept of healthy SG I would say mm. um, but again the devil is in the details and the proof is in the pudding right you have to envision this community of care but it's the question really of how to implement that yeah. and if we can really successfully implement a community that is hypothetically self-sustainable yep. in caring for one another yep. where seniors are empowered on different platforms to volunteer care for one another cook meals and share mm. with everyone. It's really the pipe dream of yeah. Healthier SG and it's really the pipe dream that uh, needs a working model. Mm. Yeah. So I think that's the stage that we are at, right? Where we are dreaming of what communities caring for one another could look like. Yet in Singapore, we know that neighbours don't talk to one another now. Mm. Doors remain shut. People are more protective of privacy scams are on the rise so mm. understandably as well uh, people tend to be sensitive about their health as mm. well and they are educated with information about how treatment options and they are wealthier enough to pay for services professionalized rehab yep. discreet as well about conditions like erectile dysfunction yep. and so these are counterintuitive to the idea of being you know open yeah. as a community and being together aging together yeah so it's again a very it's singapore a push yeah yeah it's a very uniquely um singapore you know problem yeah um and and there are many tensions when we try to bring people who are diverse together and you know in a place and um not cater to that diversity we mm. can't just have a uniform model of running an active aging center yeah the activities that people want nowadays are diverse. People have the option to pay for premium. Mm -mm -mm. They don't want your mass events anymore. They yep. want something that's curated, customized with people that I like and enjoy. <laughs> like a spin class, right? Yeah. yeah. There's a certain type, a certain look. Yeah. There's a certain... The aesthetics of it matters as much as the actual activity as well. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's the generation of seniors that we are dealing with, the mm. ones in their 50s now, in their 60s, and they will be the seniors that we're caring for in 2030. Mm. Um, yeah, so it's really fascinating how, you know, we are transitioning to um, cater and serve different populations of seniors with, yeah, just different levels of diversity and all that. Yeah. yeah. On... The fact that you mentioned it, I think we are trending in a direction where 
I think our, our identities or our lives are becoming a lot more siloed and we're not interacting as much as uh, I think quote unquote we used to with our neighbours or sharing or being I guess a bit more communal is, is, is that something that you've experienced yourself like are people bec- becoming more private more more siloed um, we are just forming our own bubble um, in terms of let's say information we consume in terms of uh, the things we want to talk about everything outside of it it, it doesn't concern us at all and that seems to be yeah yeah so I think that's definitely true for some some people I think mm. the the idea of living in a bubble in Singapore where we are protected from you know natural disasters mm, and yeah. we are also protected from um the kind of scarcities in life that people in other countries face yep. and it's really easy to you live your life in Singapore getting by without poking your nose into other people's business or even thinking about others, right? And you are who you hang out with. So Mm -hmm. I guess that's where bubbles are created as well. Um, And both in different life stages as well. Uh, Like recently having a kid, then you tend to gravitate towards discussing, you know, uh, kid-related information with other (laughs) parents. And then I'm like consciously, oh no, how do I, you know, have conversations with my friends who are single and have I stopped talking to them? And it's making a conscious effort to do so. You have to make a conscious effort to do so. (laughs) Yeah, because it's like, what, your priorities are just, how how do you take care of the kid? It gravitates around the kid, I would assume. Yeah. But I think that's where it's self-reminders, where it's about putting it in practice in your daily routines where you think of people around you and think of others. And it's not something that can be forced upon someone. The idea of caring for others, for example. It has to be something that naturally is who you are. Yeah. So so I guess that's really um, what I'm trying to do for education Mm. for children, for example where if we build a culture of care, where we are good examples of caring for others, then when they one day become responsible for caring for people older than them, their parents, they wouldn't make such decisions like sending them to JB or dumping them. And it really starts at home. And I think if more people knew about the idea of how important it was to create these values through action Mm -hmm. um, and how relevant it is more so in a comfortable place like Singapore um, how that would really go a long way in helping them their families be in good state so that's really a tricky balance Mm -hmm. and I think not everybody is comfortable with moving into that space of understanding others or even putting themselves out there to be vulnerable to Mm -hmm. learning new things or interacting with people whom they are not familiar with yeah. so it really takes that bonus to do so and um, I think for me that's why in our events or initiatives we try and use that as an entry point for people to do things that otherwise they would not have done so Yeah, I do think the question at the end of the day is how do you understand someone so foreign from you and have lived a totally different life from you that how do you understand someone like that when let's say you have no means of interaction. I think these days it's interesting because with YouTube, TikTok, all these uh, platforms of independent uh, media, like people can just do uh, videos of a day in a life and people can get 
I guess, uh, a very edited glimpse of what, let's say, a life in a migrant worker look like. And you get a little bit of insight there. But I think at the end of the day, you can just be viewing all these different um, videos and, and, and articles and read them online, but you shy away from the actual interaction of it. So how does one actually... I think the biggest question of them all is how do you actually understand and have empathy towards an individual whose life is so vastly different from yours, who, who have a different background, who have a different way of thinking from you? Yep. Yeah, it's so interesting. That's a dilemma we have with a lot of students who interact with uh, seniors mm. because they will always start from but I don't speak dialect right uh, I don't relate to what they like mm. like food or channel 8 <laughs> <laughs> yeah. or Duba, yep. the radio channel and uh, yeah for them they're always thinking about the fears and possibilities of what they may uh, encounter when they speak to seniors. Fears and possibilities. What do you mean? Yeah, so the po- the, the possibilities of seniors uh, not being able to understand them or mm. the possibilities of seniors uh, not relating to what they like as youths. But for me, my challenge to them is how do you think deeper about who they are as a person? You know, Have you ever wondered where um, the love for channel 8 came from uh, why is it so important that they read the newspapers every day mm. um, in hard copy uh, why is it so important that they have routines where they go to the market and just buy like one or two items and then come back home mm. and it is in that challenge where you know more about people through interaction so the senior might share that he or she is lonely at home the mm. daily commute to the market is really not to buy the thing. They could live without it for two or three days. They can go every week once. But they choose to go every day because of the route that they take, the people that they meet, the interactions that they have. And then a trip to the market becomes two hours easily mm-hmm. because of all that. So understanding the person comes with conversation and that comes with that bonus of the conversation as well. Yeah. Um, challenge to students always is um, you know do yourself a favor and be bold because it's uh, it's a disservice to yourself if you continue having uh, um, your understanding of others based on assumptions Mm. with this opportunity it is to clarify for yourselves or to experience yourself is your assumptions true and start from there Um, yeah so I think the interactions are not always deep students and seniors or with migrant workers even but I think it's about the shared understanding of humanity as well that when you have a conversation with someone and it ends with a smile a laugh and that bonus is encouraged to continue and we always tell students you know go back home talk to your grandparents because that's where it starts from Mm. do you know what they used to do for work where they used to live what was the life that they had when they were young? What was their favorite food? And what's something they lost or at the lowest point of time in their lives? You know, where was it? And for many of them, you know, surprisingly, even things like where did they used to work at or as what is not common knowledge. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really the gap in the assumption yeah. that we might have. So 
that's really the crux of it, right? If we live in societies where we have assumptions of others, that's where lines of divisions would be mm. um, based upon, would be built upon as well. Mm. And, and so that's important to have that bonus to move out of that lines yeah. and just step across the wall. Yeah, I do think it's not just bonus, but I guess a sense of openness and vulnerability to just even... Uh, engage in conversation or engage the other party just to talk I guess for the sake of talking understanding not just talking down or like talking up or like tokenizing but just talking to talk mm. and just to understand like what you mentioned the, the humanity in, in that individual yeah. even though the, the English or might not be good as you or they can only speak a certain dialect they can only speak Chinese but just meeting in the middle and just conversing mm. yeah because it's, it's funny because growing up in a family, you have, um, oh, you have your grandparents, you only know them as your grandparents, or even your parents, you only know them as your parents, and you might not even know like the lives that your parents have led mm -hmm. before having you because you don't see it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it makes sense. They had lives and they were individuals, but them as an individual and them as your mom or your dad is mm -hmm. two wildly different ideas that I think um, as as people grow up or as people go through different phases, so like, people become parents. Yeah. They, they they match the idea and like, oh yeah, they were individuals before. Yeah. 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 It's like when having a kid and then not having a kid last time, your life is very different. Yeah. So I think I really appreciated it when my son came about and then I was telling my parents, wow, <laughs> I really appreciate you for you know going through this journey yeah. three times with my siblings and me mm. and then being able to relate to you know that life stage and milestone yeah. and yeah you're right openness and vulnerability is so underrated in society we see openness as often vulnerable and therefore being negative as a weakness as a weakness yeah where it, yeah the reverse is true it is when you are open and vulnerable that it becomes uh, a place where you are able to engage people without judgment without um, prejudice and yeah and some people might interpret it as being capo mm. <laughs> uh, but yet you know it's really a good trait to have yeah yeah do you see uh, a sense of commonality between these two different endeavors that you're currently doing? Because to me, it feels like you love to work with people. Would, would you agree with that, that, that statement? Or do you see like a, a different uh, commonalities between these two things? Yeah. So I think the commonality is the, the ethos of sustainable development mm. and seeing the future that we'll hand over to the next generation. Uh, I think it's also what worries me the most. Um, how relevant will Singapore be, you know, in 10, 20, 30 years time? Um, and I think these are the, the, the factors that will make or break, you know, Singapore as a society. So it's, it's not, these causes versus others i think other causes are equally important and mm. noble mm. Um, but for me i think my life's work starting um, from my experience as a growing up in Geylang, being able to see all these the privilege of um, seeing the lives of seniors in dakota in the relocation process and then also finally now bringing it all together as a form of work labor 
Uh, and then yet as a cause or life's mission with my son in mind. Mm. I think that is really the transition of these ideas into action. So it's not something that is, I find, one or the other, right? It's not a selectiveness of mm. cause, but it's the spirit of the why in spite of limited time, energy, and the work, yep. right? That I could be in a job that makes you a lot of money, could do tours, bring yep. people to the red light district. And um, yeah, it's just opulence if I were to indulge in that. So that's where I don't find meaning in. Mm. And yeah, for me, it's just been a natural journey or process, if you call it, uh, to get here. Did the pieces always make sense? Or did it only make sense or maybe recently when you had your kid and you were looking back and mm. all the pieces kind of made sense? Yeah. I think because it's a process, mm. I remember when it became like that. Okay. So it always made sense in that sense. Yeah. It wasn't like, uh, you know, you try one thing that doesn't work, then you try another thing and then you try something until it works, right? It wasn't that case. It was always like journeying through different ups and downs, yes, but it was always consistently with this vision in mind of a better Singapore, one that's sustainable yeah. in its development. And yeah, I think it has been a journey where you meet many like-minded people as well. Um, and I think that brings me hope to continue. Mm. It, it's not that lonely when you see people with the same sufferings as you, uh, the same life stages mm -hmm. or shifts in priorities or um, yeah, how different life cycles um, move uh, through this journey is it has really been the consistent thread. I have two more questions for you before mm. we end off this conversation. Um, how do you remain um, driven to do what you do and not take a turn for the cynical? Mm. Yeah. How do yeah. you remain, uh, I guess, grounded in, I guess, what you want to do and your intentions in and actually mm. uh, seeing through the, the, the plans and the actions you have and not just be cynical mm. about, oh, it's, it's too difficult. It's too it's too large of a problem for any one person to actually handle because it is. You're talking mm. about such a macro problem that no one country in this world actually has a solution to. We have theories, we have experts and we have analysis, but we don't have actual solutions. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it's really important to be grounded, right? Because it's an ever-changing and ever-depressing world that we live in. The more you dig into certain issues, the more you find out about things yep. that have happened, the gaps, yep. the struggles of people and population, uh, it can be really burdensome. Yeah. Yeah. So faith grounds me a lot, mm. um, my Christian faith and um, the idea of how we all are here for a reason and how God has a plan for us. Um, but I think more importantly, the idea that the idea of death, actually. That also. we are all here with expiry date. Mm. Yeah, so you can count down, you know, towards the, the next milestone, next thing you're looking forward to me. But for me, I count down to dying and, mm -hmm. and death, right? Where the idea of having a limited time period only um, urges you to action. Um, 
and that every time I think you feel down or you see something or mountain that seems too immovable, I think it's always important to understand the bigger purpose of why you are here. If you can move one stone off that mountain, then it is good work. Mm-hmm. And it is effort thereby in itself. Mm. And I think that's the spirit that mountains of change can move, right? Yeah. Where it might not be in this generation, but it was previous generations where stones were moved that yep. it finally moves in this time yeah. and place. So, yeah, I I choose not to be, I think, disheartened when um, things happen that may not be what you expect or want. Mm. Um, it's definitely not been a smooth journey all the way. And, um, yeah, so really the, the idea of being one day expiring. Being mortal. Yeah, being mortal and being in this life, this yeah. position, it's really a privilege to be here and yeah to do everything like here as well it's it's interesting because it sounds as though it's being hyper present because if if you're constantly worried about the future that's I guess anxiety if you're worried about the past that's a form of anxiety as well I guess Mm -hmm. we have the Mm -hmm. we have minds that are capable of projecting into the future and projecting into the past as well but I guess the idea of being like super present and being I guess even thankful for your current situation your current Mm -hmm. circumstances wherever you are wherever whatever job you might have, not even a job, but who you are as a person at this particular point and seeing how things go from there is a yeah. very powerful statement. Yeah. How did you come to arrive at this yeah. uh, particular frame of mind? Like being present, um, knowing that you're basically not invincible, that mm. you have an expiry date that you do not know when. Yeah. That, that, that actually motivates you or that actually pushes you along and mm. doesn't, um, turn you into like a total nihilist that you don't want to do anything at all. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think a big part comes with the acceptance of that things are not within our control. Mm. That you can try all you want, but if the door doesn't open, the door doesn't open. Mm. And I think being accepting of circumstance is one thing, but choosing not to do anything is the other. Oh, interesting. So there's a difference between the two. Yeah. So you can push at a closed door until it opens or you can try the door, find that it's locked and choose not to push it anymore, mm. right? And I think for me, it's always been constant struggle where you have to pick your battles and not every door you have to try to open. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's, that's, that is maturity right there. <laughs> yeah. So I remember when I was young, I was like fiery towards causes yep. and, you know, wanting to change the world where there were, pitting good guys versus bad guys or pitting um, one thing for the other. But when you understand trade-offs, when you understand time and place where things happen, where you look back and you see how seeds have planted, flourish and grow, then you understand why and the purpose Mm. and why you were at the point at at that time. Yeah, so... Recently, I met someone who was in working in a government agency. And I was like, you look familiar. And the last time I saw her, she was 15 years old. Mm. It was when I first started. And I was helping her with some project to thank uh, migrant workers wow. who were doing some construction in a school yeah. to build a train station. So 
oh no, to build some new facility in their school. So she was like really uh, made a big impression because of her earnestness, yeah. the zeal. And I was really challenging them, you know, well, why do something only as four of you? Yeah. Do it as a school, you know, invite them to your canteen, um, host them for lunch. And I remember just that fire when I was talking to them about what they could do and the possibilities. And then at some point of time, the teacher was like, okay, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There are good ideas, but there are ideas with liabilities mm. where we have to sign consent for, yep. we have to get the approval of the parents, the principal, the yep. teachers. Yeah, so then, yeah, it was like, oh, why do these people exist? Why do these um, systems, you know, mm. just stifle growth and change? And then now, you know, when I meet her and saw her again on my tour recently, I was like, oh, it's been a while. Mm. And she was like, yeah, uh, six, seven years. Yeah. yeah. So it was really amazing, you know, um, how the seed continues today, you know, in her role at work, mm. in her um, journey in deciding a course in uni to where she is now. And it's really where you see the seed being planted, not knowing how it will grow, whether it will flourish. Sometimes it just dies off and you just conform to society, which is a lot easier than being different mm. or pursuing something you believe strongly in. Yeah, so it's really that kind of tension that brings me hope. And it's not, uh, it's something that comes with maturity, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> yep. And it's something that I'm learning along the way still. Yeah, it's never a moment where you know it all. Yeah. yeah. I don't think the randomness, I guess, of life, of let's say if you believe in higher power or divinity or like destiny, like this, these random occurrences that even though you think you might want something, but who knows what's being prepared mm. down the line because you, you can't predict. You might know, okay, you might think you want this particular thing, but there's this really strange like uh, force at play that maybe it plans for you to have only something uh, something that you want two years later while you only while you wanted it in like six months. There's this really if 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 you look at things, so so what I mean by that, what I'm trying to say, it's like there has been um actions and causes in history where people try to enact change, but it doesn't happen in their lifetime. But several generations down the road, people who grew up listening to that one particular individual who felt like he had no impact on society, and that was the 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 spark that changed and and caused social movements. Hmm. But that individual couldn't have predicted what yeah. might happen two generations now. Mm. Yeah. And that is, I guess, just the, the, the randomness of life. La. You really can't predict such mm. things. And even if you were to try to predict it, I think the possibility of it happening is so low. But then again, who knows what might happen? Yeah. Yeah, the unknown is actually, it could be quite positive as well, mm. even though it could be scary. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think most people see things as binary mm. as you started off the conversation with and that there are good sides or that there are bad sides and of course everyone wants the state of society to be positive yep. and fair meritocratic um, and everyone agrees on that but if that involves personal change or cost would people still agree on that mm -mm. I think that's where um as a society that we've achieved and reached now, everyone wants to be um, treated equally and yeah. fairly. 
but yet do we enable them to be treated equally or fairly because of you know how far we've come mm. and how do we safeguard uh, the interests of all who may not be eligible for benefits mm. that citizens get versus yep. non-citizens yep. or where people may not seem as Singaporean as others mm. who are non-Singaporeans even yep. so it can't be binary anymore it can't be a perspective of fairness but at no cost but a conversation should be about the cost of inaction mm. if you were to do nothing yep. or to allow it to be status quo yeah so that's really a, a stage where you realize that most people will agree with um, fairness being good for society yeah but most people would not want to put their own personal stake in it. Yeah, you'd rather have someone else do it. Yeah, mm. that's one of life's greatest questions. <laughs> how 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 do you um enshrine I guess fairness for everybody? Wow, I don't know, like not um not ensuring the cost is too much. Yeah, I think these are the questions that mm. uh, is way beyond my pay grade. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There will always be disadvantaged populations. Yep. Um, and there always has been in history. But I think it's about Singapore being s- Singapore, where everything is programmed and designed. Mm. Um, yeah, it's really about imagining the next stage of society where we solve you know, this issue of fairness or resource allocation. Yep. Yeah. I, I think we're getting there. I would That's good say to hear. it's not... Uh, lost cause and yeah. in fact it is Singapore that we will have a solution or we'll come up with something yeah. Um, yeah so it goes down to a level of prioritization of where we put our resources or money towards solving Yeah, we saw that during pandemic where we mm. poured millions billions of dollars to uh, combating the crisis yep. and even when it was migrant workers or Singaporeans we were willing to commit the money because COVID didn't choose you didn't for your nationality. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I think similarly, do we, you know, choose pick and choose our resources al- mm. to be allocated um, based on whether people are Singaporean or non-Singaporeans or do we see it as a societal change that we want to create and, and, and push for it to be, you know, changed. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's fair to assume we'll probably be called something SGA. SG will probably be in the name like this initiative. But I think my last question to you is throughout your experience um, living in Geelang, running Geelang Adventures, Citizen Adventures, doing all these things, what have you learned about people and human nature through all this? Mm. Mm. That's a deep question. Mm. So I think what comes to my mind about human nature is, you know, when I used to walk home, you know, when I was in secondary school, I could tell where the street walkers were by looking at the men. <laughs> the men? So there would be a lot of men as you walk through the streets. And the gaze that they had mm. um, would help you to understand or identify where the girls were. Mm. And I just remember it being impressioned in my mind, being a young boy, right? Like you're like, wow, like the power of lust. Mm. It was really like visible and detectable and... It was where I, I felt like I saw humanity in its raw form, mm. right? Where the gaze of men looking with lust mm. and being able to 
like just walk through the streets. Okay, sex worker there behind this part, this building, and being able to tell that just from the men's faces. Yeah, so I think, I think deep down we are just very um, yeah. I, I mean, human nature is is what it is, but. I think as a society, Singapore has become more educated, cultured, evolved. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, hopefully, right? Because I think in that true essence of it, in its raw, un- unfiltered, unadulterated form, we are still humans mm. in nature. Uh, so I think it's, yeah, I feel like discussing human nature, it's, it's going to be similar in every society. But I think in Singapore what we have done is we have created human conditions of living. We have created legislation, rules of the land and law to condition people to behave otherwise Mm. or behave uh, not as they should inappropriately, Mm. right? But I think that's also where the opportunity is. If we know human nature and we relate causes to just, you know, you should, volunteer because it's good for society Mm. Um, human nature normally would put it as secondary importance right but if you frame it that you should volunteer not just yourself but with your children to be a good example and to uh, get yourself and them involved in the future that you are creating for them Mm. then I think that's a very different narrative of um, motivation and for human nature as well, we do things beyond self-gratification sometimes. Mm. And my hope is that this would, you know, be one of the identifiers that they relate to and be involved. And in, in Geelong, I think that's where um, I see compassion sometimes in vice. So I remember when... Mean? Yeah. I remember when I was... Uh, I... I was uh yeah walking by mm. the gambling den and I f- I knew about this um story of this um migrant worker who repeatedly kept coming back you know for a, f- a whole month mm. to gamble and one of the operators eventually found out why he was doing so because his family was sick uh, his grandmother was sick mm. and he was trying to find the quickest way to earn yep. money. Yeah, So he gave him a full refund of what wow. he had lost because of because of what he heard that this guy had gambled his whole month's salary mm. in hopes mm. of earning more yeah. and he's still wanting to come back. Mm. He told him to don't ever come back here again and go and work. And yeah, and it was just like that compassion that... um. Yeah, the idea of uh, despite the morality of the activity, but yet the act of compassion, I think, which got me thinking about how we perceive vice and mm. the, the 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 jobs and stigma that comes with it for sex workers, where even for migrant workers, where many of them come far away from home yep. for a better future, often not for themselves often for their families back home. So if we had understood or seen that from their perspectives, the lives that depend on them, that depend on their job, Mm. some who don't even tell their families what they do in Singapore, some who do it 
out of love and often to do it you know from that perspective that I don't want the next generation after me to go through what I'm doing now mm. you know, to have a better future yeah. or their younger siblings as well so it's really that perspective that helps me see humanity in a new dimension really that it's not about you know people living selfishly yeah. but despite the labels despite the stigma we have on these populations and these industries there is still compassion and humanity in that and I think that's really something admirable to learn from. Yeah. Mm. And that's a beautiful way to end this episode. Um, Where can people find you online? <laughs> well, I heard nowadays kids are not on Facebook anymore. Apparently not. <laughs> yeah. So I, I would, if, if I would people are said, interested to, to, let's say, go on a, a tour, a tour yeah. Yeah. Where, yeah, where can they find it? Yeah. So you can Google Geelong Adventures or you can uh, find us on our website, citizenadventures.com. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I heard young people on LinkedIn I think these it's days. Trending now, yeah. Yeah, so you can find me on LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't imagine saying such a thing one day. <laughs> <laughs> when was LinkedIn cool? <laughs> okay, before we end, um, yeah. is there anything else you would like to talk about? Yeah, I, I think the the last parting message would be for um Singapore as a whole mm -hmm. I think as a society it's really about the introspection that um that we can all do uh, in terms of the future that we want to create and I think that is really something that requires the whole of community to come in and do something about it and like what we always share it doesn't have to be a big way that you give money or you yep. volunteer or you donate uh, it could really just be something that starts at home and I think if all of us could start at home to do something for someone or get to know someone better um, Singapore would be a much better place mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's these conversations that we have with one another with people around us that would also move, move the needle of uh, compassion in society the values that we want to see being enacted when we demonstrate them ourselves yeah beautiful um thank you for your time the conversation and your insights thank you thank you kevin thank, thank you. you thanks for listening we hope you enjoyed the episode and feel inspired if you enjoyed what you heard thus far do give us a follow on instagram and don't forget to share and subscribe stay tuned for the next episode